Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Summerhill Church. It is fantastic to have you with us here uh, this Sunday morning. Uh, and welcome as well to those who are online. We're missing you. Hope that you'll be back with us soon. Uh, but that's the way things go at the moment, and we're really thrilled that you're with us online at least. Um, for those who are online, as well as for everyone here, it'd be great if you had your Bibles uh, open to that Matthew passage uh, that was the second one read for us. Um, this morning's uh, time in the Scriptures is a little bit different to our usual. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been working through a, a little mini-series on the more painful parts of our relationships with one another. A week we spent looking at forgiveness, a week reflecting on the shape that reconciliation of damaged and broken relationships take, uh, and today looking at uh, the topic of rebuke or correction, difficult speech with which we might address one another. And it is a little bit unusual. We, we tend to be jumping around to a bunch of different texts. Normally, we'd work through a whole passage and kind of spend some time understanding it in the context of the whole book. And that is a little bit different here. Uh, all the verses that I'm going to touch on are on your sheet, uh, so you can go back and have a look at them again later. Uh, down the bottom of the sheet, there is a QR code if you want to ask any questions uh, or make comments on the things that I've been speaking about uh, or the passages that we look at. Uh, and so we'll come back uh, and look at that uh, later on this morning if there are questions that come through. Um, before we do dive in, I just wanted to say that uh, if you haven't, if you're one of those people who tend to kind of, you know, not really check uh, the church e-news as it comes through. Uh, I think Tim's going to mention it later on this morning to check on that, but there's one thing in there that it's particularly worth you noting uh, so that it can inform your prayers and your joy and your thanksgiving, is that this last week, Summerhill Church was able to uh, announce and confirm that we've appointed someone uh, to fill a one-and-a-half-day role in the church office, helping the staff in managing the ministry here, the property, and a whole lot of other things. Uh, and Jessica Adams, who who's over here in church with us this morning, uh, has been appointed, uh, which is really exciting news for the wardens and for Lauren and I as church staff. Uh, we'll meet uh, and hear a bit more from Jessica in coming weeks, but if you'd like to kind of know what Jessica brings to the role and what she'll be doing, uh, check the email, uh, and there's a little bit of an intro information in that for you uh, later on today. Uh, well, let's spend some time listening to God's voice on this last little section on difficult aspects of our relationships with one another, that of rebuke. Now, as undeniably difficult and challenging as it is, we saw several weeks ago now, forgiveness, that is the cancelling of a debt that another owes us, it is something we can choose to do even without the cooperation of the person who's wronged us. We can cancel their debt. Reconciliation, as we saw two weeks ago, can be more relationally complicated and fraught thing to pursue, though, in part because it requires both the person who has been wronged and the person who has done the wronging to draw close to one another. We reflected on that a couple of weeks ago. You might remember that I mentioned, I think with any reconciliation, there's probably going to involve these particular things, uh, that there needs to be a recognition of the wrong, perhaps even sorrow for it, confession of it, restitution, a making right of the wrong where it's possible, and repentance, a turning away from that way of wrong behaviour. So often, though, our attempts at seeking some kind of reconciliation or restoration in a relationship simply stumble and fall at that very first hurdle, 
the hurdle of recognising, at, sharing, at a shared recognition, a shared awareness or confession of what wrong actually has been done in the first place or exactly what specific wrong was committed or even who has wronged who and in what proportions. In the midst of a conflict, it's often the case, isn't it, that we find each other perhaps prickly to deal with, manipulative even in how we go about navigating those difficult moments. Sometimes we even find the other person unwilling to even listen and to recognise our overture of reconciliation that we're offering to them. Maybe we recognise those tendencies in ourselves as much as those who we've sought to seek reconciliation with. When faced with that kind of resistance, those kind of personal resistances, with obstacles and barriers to recognising what and when wrongs have been committed, Christians will often find themselves grappling with the question of whether to and exactly how to confront others with the reality of some wrong that has been committed. Rebuking, admonishing, reproving, what place might those forms of confronting speech have in our relationships with each other? And especially in the restoring of our damaged relationships. What are we to think of rebuke, reproving, admonishing one another? Now, while I've heard preachers often blame our culture's idolising of tolerance and affirmation for our hesitancy, often to take rebuke seriously... I'm going to actually suggest that apart from some some pretty specific instances, instructions for church leaders, the Scriptures themselves actually uh, provide far more reasons to exercise caution and restraint in rebuking others than they give us encouragement to practice it. That might be a new and challenging thing to begin to process together this morning. Uh, No book of the Bible uh, has more to say about rebuking and correcting others than the book of Proverbs, uh, the Old Testament wisdom book. In fact, I think it has, I think, twice as much to say uh, about rebuking and correcting as any other book uh, in the Bible. Yet even Proverbs urges particular caution about when and to whom rebuke should be offered. When it comes to offering and receiving rebukes, the book of Proverbs first counsels us to read the room. That is, to take notice of the situation we're in before we speak any word of rebuke or correction. To be attentive to who it is that we're thinking about rebuking and whose sin it is that we're thinking about calling out. Let me read to you a few little snippets from Proverbs. First of all, Proverbs chapter 9. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. And then down in Proverbs chapter 27, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. Don't correct a mocker. Don't correct or rebuke the wicked, 
the writer of Proverbs exhorts us. And there's very good reason for us to heed this advice. Words of rebuke are to be directed towards the wrongdoer's good, ultimately. We'll see this a little bit later on. Words of rebuke are to facilitate the ultimate restoration or reconciliation with the one who has done what is wrong. So if the person in question is unlikely to receive our rebuke as either the gift of a friend or the nurturing guidance of a parent, there is precious little point in us offering it. Friends, we don't rebuke, or at least we shouldn't, I think often this is what the reasons why we do rebuke. We shouldn't rebuke simply to get something off our own chest. That's not the point of rebuke. We don't rebuke simply to clear the air and for our own peace of mind. Although I often think that's exactly why we do it. We shouldn't rebuke simply because we wish to clear our conscience so that once we've said our piece, we can wash our hands of the matter and be confident that we don't have to deal with the messiness of whatever wrong has been done anymore. A rebuke fired off too quickly in an SMS text or electronically. A rebuke dumped at another person's feet and never again gently followed up on is almost certainly about alleviating our own anxieties. It's more about signalling our own offence at something than it is actually about restoring a wayward brother or sister. When considering the practice of rebuke, we do well to carefully first read the room. Proverbs enjoins us to offer rebuke only where our words will be likely to be received as the gentle wounds of a friend or as the nurturing discipline of an attentive parent. In fact, throughout the book of Proverbs, it's almost only ever in the context of friendship or the relationship of a parent instructing a child that people are called to offer rebuke. Offered outside those two spheres of either friendship or parental intimacy, there's an increasing likelihood that we'll be simply inviting insult or incurring abuse. And we'll see later that there are other directions that are specifically given to church overseers, that is, those who oversee a church, but we'll come to that later. Uh, In the Old Testament book of Job, you might remember that Job's friends spent a good part of the book pointing out Job's faults, rebuking Job for what they assume must have been his faulty behaviour, for what they imagine are Job's moral and spiritual failings. But in the very final chapter of the book, you might like to have a look at it later on, chapter 42, God describes these speculative and these misguided rebukes that were delivered to Job as actually lies against himself. Imagine that. How might that change our tendency to rebuke if we were to remember that if we offer them too hastily or with too little attention, God might himself take offence at the words that we deliver to another. In the New Testament book of Jude, it notes the hesitancy of even the archangel Michael himself to rebuke the devil... If anyone ever had good grounds to rebuke another, you'd think it would be the Archangel Michael rebuking Satan. you think you're on pretty solid ground there. But even he was hesitant and said, the Lord rebuke you. See, to launch words of rebuke against others too quickly runs the danger that we'll end up shooting our mouths off about things that we don't sufficiently understand. 
Uh, even Jesus. And I was a little bit nervous about it. I had to do a, a double quick search on my phone before I got up just to make sure I wasn't missing anything. Even Jesus himself almost never delivers a rebuke. Yes, he delivers a rebuke to the wind and the waves, to the demons, to Satan himself. Yes, he delivers a rebuke to Peter, but do you remember what he says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. It was a reasonably significant moment. The only other occasion, uh, tell me if you can find another one, the only other occasion I can recall is when Jesus' disciples say to Jesus, hey, can you bring down fire and brimstone on that town and completely destroy it? And Jesus does rebuke them in that instance. Mind you, we do have Jesus' words that we might recall from the Gospels, don't we? Words like those found in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, Very well-known words, I'll read them out for us up on the screen. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. At stake in this instance is the credibility of any rebuke that we might dare to offer. Jesus is not suggesting, I think, at this point, that only the perfect person should dare speak up about another's failings. Uh, That's not the point that he's making. But rather that we only address the failings of others in proportion to the sober seriousness with which we address the matter of our own failings and shortcomings. Our own failings should loom larger in our own vision than the failings of others. I mean, if you went to a doctor, um, have you ever had that experience of floaters uh, in your eye, that little moment where it, it seems like there's something in your eye and it's just going across your vision like a little speck of dust or something like that? Imagine if you went to the doctor, apparently, I've, you know, please don't take any medical advice from me, just to be completely clear, okay? But I did do the Google doctor thing, uh, and most of the time it's fine. Apparently, if it's a remarkable change in them, you should go and chat to your GP. Please chat to your GP, don't listen to me. But imagine you go to your GP and you express some concern about it, and they're giving you advice all while having untreated cataracts in their own eyes. It's not just a question of whether or not they're fit to be able to see what's going on. But someone who takes their own weaknesses and failings so lightly surely isn't in a fit state to make much insightful comment on our own. If I'm inattentive to the existence of greed, for example, in my own life, I'll likely offer very poor diagnosis of any greed that I think I perceive in the life of another. Notice, though, that Jesus' assumption is that we absolutely will address the specks in the eyes of others, the blindness that others may have to their own sin. It's just that we should only do so in proper proportion to the clarity that we have about our own self-acknowledged failings. Where we are unwilling to listen to and act upon even our own advice, we'll risk making a mockery of any rebuke that we might dare to make to others. Uh, The person who's got pretty poor self-awareness in this kind of way will usually rebuke others in a very self-interested and self-justifying 
kind of way. And it's neither wise nor a virtue to accept rebuke from a person such as that. So then, the the overwhelming weight of Scripture leans in the direction of expressing significant caution about practising rebuke or correction. And yet there certainly does seem to remain a place for the practice of some corrective speech in the life of the church, as we saw in the reading from today's passage in Matthew 18. Uh, You might like to have it there open. Uh, We're going to read a few verses of it in a moment. There there is actually no mention of rebuke in this passage. Uh, The word there is correction that's used early on in in verse 15 uh, that that isn't quite seen there, but it it is used. Uh, Perhaps later on at the end of this little moment that we'll read, rebuke might fit into publicly calling someone out in in the church gathering. But Jesus here is here specifically addressing how his disciples, how those who are ex- exercising authority in the church community might respond to the sin of a community's member. In the earlier part of the chapter, he's been warning against just how their, their sense of their own greatness can go terribly wrong in how they treat others. And then he comes to dealing with this moment of, uh, of correcting a brother or a sister. But this is not a one, two, three step guide for us to be just going about practicing personal rebuke whenever we think it might be fitting, for just correcting any old sin or failing that we happen to spot in another. As it's clear from the way Jesus' advice concludes in verse 17, this passage is about addressing the kind of sin or the kind of pattern of life that is serious enough, perhaps, to ultimately exclude someone from membership amongst God's people. It's worth bearing that in mind before we go quickly to trying to apply these steps in our own little difficult, messy, painful situations. And even in such an extreme situation as Jesus addressing here, deliberate caution is urged. Have a read with me, uh, verse 15. Verse 15 of chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault, Uh, the same word there is the idea of correction, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Any instinctive move to public rebuke, to open condemnation of another's failures, should be carefully and deliberately avoided, Jesus is saying. Where a wrongdoing can be humbly corrected that is not called out and judged as a failing, but urged to pursue a different course of behaviour, to do that person to person, face to face, when we can do that, a rebuke might not ever need to even be delivered or offered. As an aside, I think there probably are occasions, it's worth me to mention here, when keeping a sin just between you and the offender is actually not a wise course of action. For instance, when it involves the grievous sin of church leaders, such a rebuke should, from the start, with witnesses, be delivered publicly, not kept private. Uh, And that often is 
uh, a direction of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I've got the verse, I think they're on the sheet. If I don't, it's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Uh, later on next year, I think we're going to come back and look at 1 Timothy and the directions that it gives about church leadership and teaching and overseers and, and how church leadership and life is structured. But we won't go there this morning. But it does say that the, the, the failings of church leaders are to be addressed publicly, not just done privately in a side room and never brought to light. I think one of the ways in which I could encourage you guys to do that, if you're ever anxious, particularly about how I act, how uh, any other overseers, like Peter Scholl, who sometimes preaches in the morning, he's been ordained as a presbyter as well. In those instances, you can go to our local bishop or you can contact the professional standards and they will make sure that the wrong of church leadership is dealt with openly, not hidden and secretly. Uh, the details for the professional standards unit will be popped up on the screen after the service, and you can take note of it just to keep it handy in case you might ever need it. Or another example is maybe perhaps where the offender has a track record of manipulation, a defensive tendency to blame shift away from themselves, maybe back even towards the person who's raising the concern, or to even victimise those who point out their patterns of sin. It's not advisable just to keep it between the two of you. Far better in such a case to begin at step two. Have a look with me at verse 16. Verse 16. Jesus says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's a passage dealing with especially serious crimes and situations in which people are likely to maliciously lie or to distort the truth. Both the integrity of the accusations and the witnessing, the, and witnessing the response of the accused person to, uh, to the accusations is significant at this point. Because the kind of sin that Jesus is addressing here is one that is likely to have serious consequences must it ever come to public light. Have a look with me at verse 17. There Jesus continues, If they still refuse to listen... Tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan, that is an unbeliever or a tax collector. As it's clear from the way Jesus concludes his advice here, this passage is about addressing the kind of sin or a pattern of life that is serious enough to exclude someone from membership amongst God's people. Jesus certainly isn't here laying out some general flowchart for how we might deal with any and every grievance between ourselves and another believer. Often, rebuke will never need to come into our dealings with others. And I'll reflect a little bit on what we might do instead as we finish up our time together this morning. Uh, Paul uh, actually gives us a worked example of how to pursue what Jesus is instructing here. You might remember back 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I was addressing the situation in which there was a believer as a part of the church in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother and was unrepentant in it. And the Apostle Paul basically takes this line that Jesus has laid out here. But even in such a serious and grievous situation as that, if you read the second letter that Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
you'll see that once the person has become repentant, Paul urges the church to draw them back into fellowship, that they might not be crushed. The aim and the goal of any rebuke, when it is taken, is to ultimately bring about full reconciliation and restoration with the church community. The pattern of rebuke here is focused upon addressing the kind of behaviour that might conceivably either spread throughout a community like yeast or might disqualify the wrongdoer from membership amongst God's people. And our ultimate concern in those situations is for even the most stubborn offender to be fully restored to church community with as few barriers and obstacles as possible. And friends, the more quickly we resort to harsh and open rebuke, the more difficult full reconciliation will probably be likely to pursue, especially should our own rebuke prove either unnecessary, that is, the person would be quick to, re- to have repented even without being officially rebuked, or perhaps if our accusation, our rebuke of them was unfounded. Uh, it's striking that in the New Testament, as I'd mentioned earlier, there is no direct encouragement for believers in general to be practising rebuke as a regular matter of course. Only those who serve as overseers, that is, those who are uh, placed in responsibility of a church community, as I have been, are directly exhorted and directed to administer rebuke. And even then, it's only one of the four patterns of speech which they're called upon to perform. I'm going to go through this very quickly. The verses are up on the screen because I don't want to spend too much time about what I should and shouldn't do. Uh, We're talking generally about how we think about corrective speech in our relationships with one another, but it might be helpful for you to have these in mind. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, addressing an overseer of a church, Timothy, instructs him, Paul instructs him to teach, rebuke, correct, and to train in righteousness. Four kinds of speech, rebuke is only one of them. And you notice that the others, teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, are all more proactive, positive, restorative, redirecting and changing kinds of speech. Rebuke, that is calling someone out, identifying their failing, is only one amongst them. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy again, preach the word as an overseer. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And then in Titus chapter 2 verse 15, he is instructed to do it with all authority. Notice that that Timothy actually has the authority to deliver rebuke. It's part of his role as an overseer. And even then, he is instructed to only do so with great patience and careful instruction. Rebuke isn't something you fire off outside of any other context of relationship or seeking the good of the person whom you are addressing, even for the one who is the church overseer. Uh, the church overseer does have authority to deliver rebuke. And I think that's probably why you might recall that passage from James 3 that says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Because in the way in which we judge others, the same manner we ourselves will be judged. 
church leaders will be judged more harshly because they bear the authority to rebuke. It is not something that even they should do flippantly or quickly or carelessly. Well, what about the rest of us, though? If we lay aside church overseers for the moment. Simply avoiding hard conversations is never going to be an option where we're supposed to be genuinely loving towards one another. Difficult conversations are going to be needed. The Scripture's warnings against resorting too quickly to rebuke must not become a free pass to just absolve ourselves from addressing one another's behaviour altogether, at all. Where other forms of speech are available to us, they should always be preferred to rebuke even for those like Timothy, who have the authority to rebuke. Have a look at this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul exhorts Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Where there is a chance of first exhorting, urging, encouraging, persuading someone about their behaviour, that is a far better course to pursue than to simply resorting to the blunt act of rebuke. We will almost never simply be faced with a choice, will we, really, between simply rebuking sin or ignoring it. Sometimes we might feel like there's that tension. We either have to ignore it or to go hard and rebuke it. We're almost never going to be faced with that kind of starker decision. Most of the times we'll first have plenty of opportunity to graciously urge people to pursue greater righteousness. Or think about these verses from Colossians chapter 3 that we looked at back several weeks back as well, where Paul urges us, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. They are virtues that almost always should predispose us to leaning in the direction of forbearance, that is, pressing into patiently bearing with one another's failings wherever we are able to do so. Not every sin or failure needs to ultimately be labelled either guilty or innocent in judgment. We don't need to call out every single failing. We can bear with one another, even as we exhort encourage. Rebuke is never to be resorted to simply because it eases our own annoyance. To have to put someone in their place, to have spoken our mind, or because it allows us to move on quickly from an unsettling situation, that is not why anyone should ever rebuke. Indeed, it's often only once we've walked the long-suffering road of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience with another person that will earn the kind of trust required to successfully carry off a rebuke should it be required. I know that that's been a lot to try and process in one go. It's just one of those topics that isn't easy to do in a quick and snappy kind of way. But actually, what I want to leave you with today is not any further advice about how you might deliver rebuke or correction. Let's put that to the side for a moment. Rather, I want to leave you with a few thoughts about how you might personally receive rebuke or receive such correcting speech. 
Friends, can I encourage you to seek out, as one of life's most precious treasures, that kind of friend from whom you can receive even wounding words as a gift of love. Maybe you know you've already got someone like that. Brothers and sisters, there is no pastor or mentor. There is no parent or therapist. There is no husband or wife that can bless us more than the kind of friend whose words of rebuke we're able to receive with peace and joy. If you find such a person from whom you can receive rebuke or correction... Friends, pray every day that you're never foolish enough to despise the words that they may one day offer to you. Practice receiving rebuke and correction from them every chance that you get so that they might be emboldened to speak those words to you when you most need to hear them. I reckon most of the time we instead practice being defensive in our response to rebuke that is offered our way. Friends, if you do that, then the one who is bold enough and loving enough to speak words of rebuke to you will probably cease doing so, and you will be seriously impoverished. And of course, there is always one person whose words of rebuke we should be eager to receive without any anxiety or defensiveness. And as we've gone through today's passage, unfortunately, it has been one of those things that's delved into a whole lot of intricacies and technicalities and things like that. I'm, I'm aware of that. And so I want to leave you with this reflection. There is one whose words of rebuke we should be eager to receive without anxiety or defensiveness. These are the words of Jesus from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, where he speaks. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. Repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I want you to notice a couple of things. If this is all you remember from this morning, take this passage away and meditate on it over the course of today. In the words of the Lord Jesus, throughout the whole of the Gospels, he speaks barely any words of direct rebuke even when his disciples are getting it terribly wrong. But here he says, my love and my rebuke are one and the same. They go intimately together. Every word that the Lord Jesus speaks to correct us is a word of love and care for us. And he calls us to respond to those words with eagerness, not with sheepishness, not with guilt, not with being crushed and overwhelmed, but with eagerness. And why can we respond with eagerness to any word of correction or rebuke that Jesus might speak to us in the words of Scripture? Well, notice there that the result of Jesus speaking words of rebuke, what is it? It's so that he might come in and dine with us and we with him. It's an image of infinitely deepened fellowship and familiarity with him. So often when someone rebukes us, what's our response? It's to to try and find ways to not too obviously avoid them for at least the next two months just to avoid that awkwardness, right? Like it's the same for me as it is for you. I know it. 
Not so with the rebuke of the Lord Jesus. He only does it so that he can knock on the door, come in and be closer to us, with us. Friends, if you are rebuking and another person doesn't respond to you in the way that you expect, ask yourself, was deepened fellowship with them actually what I was pursuing? Was being able to come in and dine with them and they with us, is that what we were after? Deepened fellowship? Or perhaps even better, maybe ask that question before we think about speaking words of correction or rebuke. The Lord Jesus speaks hard words of correction to us, but only so that our relationship with him might be deepened, strengthened, and that pattern should flow over into the ways in which we speak with one another as well. Let's pray that that might be the case. Dearest Father, our relationships are difficult, sometimes painful and overwhelming things. Father, so often we are left feeling clueless to know how to restore them when they go wrong, to seek reconciliation. Father, we feel unable to forgive. We feel fearful that wrongs will be overlooked. On other occasions, Father, we are so disturbed that we, we just rush to speaking words of correction and rebuke before we've ever thought, simply out of our own hurt and annoyance. Father, we ask that you would teach us to hear the words that Jesus speaks, that we would sense in every word of correction he offers is a desire to come in and to dine with us and we with him. Father, in all the difficulties that we are yet to face in our relationships, we ask that that same deepened fellowship with one another might shape every way in which we respond in all the most painful parts of our relationships with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.